Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. The new reality of more dry, high-heat periods in California is intensifying wildfires, and South Lake Tahoe residents forced to flee their homes Monday are left to worry now about how much of their communities will be there when they get back as the Calder fire continues to bear down on the area. I didn't have any time to grab pretty much anything, though, because, you know, that, that grabbed me for surprise. Today continues to be a critical day for firefighting efforts with tens of thousands of structure, structures still threatened. And we turn now to talk about the Calder fire with KQED's climate reporter, Ezra David Romero. Ezra David Romero, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. We have been watching this fire for days and you know, just seeing the recent pictures from ski resorts, mountain passes, it's it's really kind of hard to see where we are at this point, but at the same time, it does seem like the fire hasn't grown that much in the past day. Can you tell us what the status is of the Calder fire? Yeah, I paid attention to the Cal Fire meeting this morning, and the fire grew some overnight, but they're really trying to push it south and east, like away from South Lake Tahoe, where there's all the like large amounts of people, um, and they said that the firefight is working around South Lake Tahoe, you know, like two nights ago, um, fire crews were out there all night protecting homes. And so this active firefight is actually working in those areas, but it's still, you know, burning in areas where, you know, like Kirkwood, that see that um, ski resort is and places like that. So it is still expanding. I, I saw some reporting that Firefighters are trying to steer the Caldor fire into the Tamarack fire. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, so the Tamarack fire is burning, you know, sort of southeast of uh, South Lake Tahoe. And the idea is to, you know, bring these two, bring the Caldor fire into the burn scar or the active fire of that Tamarack fire. And, you know, it's not exactly like going to build this big inferno of fire. It's like, when these two fires combine, it's sort of, they sort of go out in some way because there's nothing left to burn in that area. And so that's the general thinking around that. So it can burn up into that and become one fire on the map, but you know, sort of burn out in that area of the fire. 
Uh, I also saw some reporting that firefighters uh, are using snow machines on this, the dry slopes where there are ski resorts to increase the humidity in the air to dampen trees. Can you can you describe what's happening at that level and and why the firefighters are using that tactic and how effective it's been? Yeah, I mean, Lake Tahoe is known for its ski resorts, right? Like the Olympics were held there at Squaw Valley, you know, so people know Tahoe for ski resorts. So these places, you know, they have snow machines. I understand like at Sierra at Tahoe, that was where the fire already burned through there. I think only one structure was burned and they used, before the fire even got there, they were spraying water on their structures and on the area. And then I saw some tweets and some people reporting that out of Heavenly, that's the ski resort just next to South Lake Tahoe that they were you know, spraying their snow guns into the air with water to increase the humidity, right? Because we have this red flag warning and a red flag warning means um, the potential for winds are high, um, there's a low humidity and, and it's really dry. So all those factors combined equal um, a perfect storm for wildfire. And so they wanna increase that humidity, wet things in case the fire comes through there or an ember flies about a mile from the fire and lands there. They don't. They want to decrease the opportunity for a fire to ignite there. I want to bring Scott Stevens into the conversation now. Scott Stevens is professor of fire science at UC Berkeley's College of Natural Resources. Professor, professor Stevens, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be here. Ezra mentioned embers, and I just saw this incredible statistic that embers from this fire have a 90% chance of becoming spot fires when they land. Can you just help us understand the significance of this, especially for firefighting efforts? Yeah, I think this has really been the way that most fires in California have moved this year. We know we're in a two-year drought. This year has been very dry precipitation in the Sierra Nevada, less than half of average. So that just means our fine fuels on the ground, the dead fuels are very, very dry. So when an ember or a spark comes off and they actually moves across the fire line, lands on an area that's unburned, you can do an estimation based on the fuel moisture, temperature, humidity, and get an idea of how often those things might start a new fire. And right now conditions are saying around 90%, which is incredibly high. So that makes it so difficult for crews to really fight fire because once they get a containment, there's another ember that moves maybe a quarter mile, half mile, starts a new fire. Many thought that this fire would not be able to jump the the large granite ridge along the Tahoe Basin or, or quote, jump the granite. Is this why these embers being blown so far forward and just the combustible nature of the landscape right now? I think that's exactly right. You know, there is a lot of discontinuity up there. There's rock. There certainly is trees and vegetation through that summit, but it is separate, you know. So those embers, though, have been able to actually just jump into those areas, find areas that are unburned, start a new fire, and then subsequently they can throw embers even further. So I think that's exactly the way the fires propagated through that area is through the ember production. And of course, Ezra, that's why there were evacuation warnings that turned into orders in South Lake Tahoe. You yourself had to leave. What was that like? We saw the images of the long line of cars trying to leave the area. How were people reacting to it all? Yeah, I think I was up there reporting that day and talking to evacuees and 
Honestly, I think the evacuation was a success. I think we saw that this long line of cars um, leaving Tahoe um, and people, you know, I was there at 930 in the morning and it, I, it looked like people had already evacuated because no one was around. And then by 1030, it was packed until two. But the fire was still five miles away from South Lake Tahoe at that point. People were getting out. And this is an area, you have to understand, where it's like millions of people visit there. There's already traffic there all the time. Like they deal with traffic every day. So it would make sense that 20,000 people leaving the city on one road, one two lane high <laughs> or double lane highway, there would be traffic because like that's the nature of this place. And so looking back on it, it seemed like it was disorganized, but actually in the moment, there were, there were law enforcement directing people out of there. And it was like sort of this calm line out. It was a long line, but it was actually sort of successful in that most of these people got out that wanted to get out. And um, yeah, that was sort of the view I had standing next to them. And then I sort of joined them as I was done reporting for the day. Are you staying in Carson City, Nevada now? Because if so, it's got to be, I understand that there are a lot of back evacuees from Tahoe staying there. And it's got to be a bit surreal to see all this daily life happening there while at the same time, um, all these evacuees staying in town. Yeah, actually, my grandparents are from Carson City in Reno, so I've spent a lot of time in Carson <laughs> City. Now I'm at a hotel here and know the area. Um, I've been here every year, twice a year since I was a kid. So it's interesting to be here. It's really smoky. Um, I did go to some evacuation centers and talk to people, you know, it's about 36 hours now since the, or 20, 48 hours after the evacuations happened. And when I was there yesterday, the people left at the evacuation centers were the people that didn't have a place to go. You know, they don't have, maybe may not have family or, or nice friends letting them stay at their houses. So they're, they're like the unhoused, they're, um, hmm. construction workers, they're, um, other people who just don't have friends that they can go to. So they are, and they had this huge for them, their fear mostly yesterday when I talked to them was around housing affordability. And like, if our house burns down, like we can't live in Tahoe anymore because we can't afford to build a new house and we don't have fire insurance. So it's a very complicated issue for, you know, the thousands of people who live in Tahoe that don't live in mansions or don't own Airbnbs and things like that. And that was actually the voice that we heard earlier in my introduction there of the person who was saying, I just didn't have time to grab anything. Everything just grabbed me by surprise. Can you just tell us a little bit about that person as we go into the break? Yeah, um, that was Henry or Jose Henry um, Mendoza, and he's from El Salvador. He's lived in South Lake Tahoe for 12 years and uh, working construction. And he was out and about doing some work. And when the, when the order hit, and by the time he got to the road, was his house was they weren't they didn't let him go back so he hopped in the car with his buddy and just had the clothes on his back that I met him there with and you know he was at the evacuation center with his friends just waiting to see what would happen well listeners if you have an experience with the Calder fire that you want to share or you have questions about it or questions about how this will affect the Lake Tahoe area you can call us at 866-733-6786 email us forum at kqed.org or post your thoughts on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the Calder Fire. 
Advancing on South Lake Tahoe with Ezra David Romero, climate reporter for KQED. Scott Stevens, professor of fire science at UC Berkeley's College of Natural Resources. And you, of course, are welcome to join the conversation if you have questions about the fire, reactions to what you're hearing, or just concerns about its impact on California. 866-733-6786. 866-733-6786 is the number. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can almost also email us at forum at kqbd.org. And Annie writes, I read that firefighters are so poorly paid that some have quit because they couldn't support themselves or their families, and it just wasn't worth it, even though they love the work. Also, some firefighters are incarcerated people hoping to catch a break once they get out of prison. We need to pay all firefighters a living wage and pay firefighting teams bonuses for every containment milestone they reach. Ezra, do you do you hear this, what Annie is describing here? I had drinks with some friends that live in Garson City last night and they were talking about this. They were saying that, you know, represent like na national representatives up here voted down um, pay increases for firefighters. So there is some animosity around that um, for firefighters in the region. Hmm. Um, yeah. Scott Stevens, some fire specialists like yourself and scientists have suggested that the tools and tactics that firefighters have at their disposal now really may no longer be adequate for the large intense fires that we have. And if that's true, then what really is the only effective solution to getting these fires under control sooner? I mean, Calder fire has been burning since August 14th. Well, this is a giant issue. We've seen fire sizes really grow exponentially the last few years. Look at the Dixie fire this year, another one that's just enormous. One thing I think it shows us though, is our landscapes themselves, our forest conditions are so vulnerable to these types of events. You know, when we take fire out of a system for a hundred years, indigenous burning lightning fire, and we start to have increases in tree densities, maybe from 40 trees per acre to 200 trees per acre or more, increases in surface fuel, the amount of dead biomass on the ground. We just really have set up our forest for conditions that when we get things like two-year drought and also climate change on the top, it really is explosive. So we, the only way we're ever gonna get out of this problem is the fundamentals. The fundamentals is trying to get our forest in a better condition to basically deal with fire, climate change, and drought. I, I thought though, um... Scott Stevens, that a lot of work had been done in the Lake Tahoe Basin in terms of reducing tree density and, and fuels and so on. How was this fire able to do what it did? No, you're absolutely right. You, if you look at some areas of California that have really have had a focus of doing some work, the Tahoe Basin is one of them. The west side of Tahoe, even out in Myers, you know, er, other areas where we're seeing the fire move. You know, people have done a lot of work to reduce fuel loads. And I think that's one reason why fire crews are in there taking defensive actions, houses are being saved and they're actually nice and safe. So that defensive work has really been huge and it's gonna pay off, I think, down there. And we need to do more of that in different communities and also work in the wildlands. But Tahoe is one place where 10 to 15 years work has really progressed there. Well, Christy writes, I'm wondering if there is air support from Cal Fire or the state. I know this was an issue for us when we had our CZU Lightning Complex fires last year. They said it was too smoky for air support. I wonder if the elevation is an issue or can you talk about any of the dangers facing air support for this fire? I'll go to you first, Ezra, on Christy's question. How has air support been? Yeah, and every morning in their Cal Fire meetings, there is a section where they talk about air support. 
Um, I think it is happening. I don't know that it's actually been a negative thing happening on the Caldor fire. I, I honestly haven't paid that much attention to that part of this, the firefight, but maybe Scott has some more information there. Yeah, and Scott, can you also help us understand when and why air support is possible? Yes, you know, there really is a fleet now of um, new aircraft, both fixed wing and helicopter. But when you have such high smoke concentrations, you really can't be effective with air support on fires. So they're looking for periods sometimes when they can get clear air and get that aircraft going. So there's no doubt the aircraft is there, but sometimes the conditions on the ground just don't allow for effective use of it. With regard to tools at firefighters' disposal, is this one of them that is potentially inadequate for the kinds of large intense fires that we're seeing, or is this one that we really need to double down on? Well, it's still a huge piece because you can use it strategically to try to slow a fire. It's very rare that an air resource will put out a wildfire, but what it will do is reduce its spread rate, reduce its intensity. That gives a chance then for the people on the ground to get in there, take defensive actions, cut fire line and get that fire out. So air resources are important, but they're not again, going to stop all fires, but they certainly are important in the whole kind of idea of how you're going to manage a large wildfire. Again, Scott Stevens is professor of fire science at UC Berkeley's College of Natural Resources. We also have Ezra David Romero with us, climate reporter for KQED. Which then, Scott Stevens, brings us back again to this question of, of mitigation. Could you just help me understand why it feels like it's been so hard to accomplish the kind of work that needs to happen in the forest that you that you have you know said is really one of the the key ways to try to slow down fire spread and and try to help firefighters control these these basically mega fires that we're seeing no, you're right. This is really an area we need to do better. It's been decades and decades and decades that people have recognized that our forests are in a very vulnerable condition. And we just haven't been able to see the really the amount of work necessary to start to change that trajectory of our forest conditions. I will say, though, the last five years or so, the state of California really has stepped up. The last year of the Brown administration through the Newsom administration, we've got people now with grants available. 250 to $400 million a year for um, grants to do this type of work, both in um, local areas, also partnerships with the federal side. So when you look recently, I think there really has been a real focus on this to get this work done. But unfortunately, this should have been happening 40 years ago, and we should have been doing it in earnest. Hmm. Lake Tahoe, Scott Stevens, is iconic for its you know, beautiful blue water. What worries you most about the fire's impact on the lake now and in the months ahead? Well, that's a great question. You know, the upper Truckee River is the largest watershed of Lake Tahoe. It turns out to be right on the southern edge of the basin. It's a place that I've been going to for years. I've done a little backpacking there. In fact, I was here, I was there just last um, fall. So that fire potentially can burn into the upper Truckee watershed. It's just below it. It's just actually encountered it recently. And unfortunately, there hasn't been fuels treatment in a lot of that area. So the upper Truckee watershed would be very vulnerable to burn at fairly high severity. That could cause some real erosion problems and also nutrients to go into the lake, which could be really detrimental. So it just shows, again, some of our watersheds are also vulnerable, and we need to work in them as long um, with the people's houses. 
So basically, um, we're hoping for a wet winter, but it sounds like with all the fire activity and the, just the spread of this fire, that it also increases the chances of erosion and contamination in the lake. I, I don't, I use that word lightly, but do you know what I mean in terms of just, just basically it's clarity being affected and potentially its species if a lot of, a lot of things run into it. No, that's right. You know, the lake clarity is something that's been managed for and monitored for decades and decades, and people are always concerned about it. And just a big amount of erosion, also nutrients moving in stream water could be very detrimental. Certainly fire needs to happen in these areas as well. We need to have low to moderate severity fire that actually will burn the understory. We'll do some of the um, thinning of the forest that's necessary. All that's needed. But we just don't want to have large patches of high severity where we see trees killed over miles and miles. That's very detrimental to the forest and also lake condition. And this is Snow writes, how do you reduce fuel loads in rugged mountain terrain? Scott Stevens? No, that's a challenging one. You know, you really have two things in your toolbox to deal with fuels in California forests. You've got fire treatments like prescribed fire, sometimes even allowing lightning fires to burn like they've done in Yosemite for decades. And you've got mechanical treatments where you use machines, thinning, um, thinning forest and doing that work. If you've got really inaccessible rugged areas with no roads, the fire treatment is really the only one you got. So you're going to either use prescribed burning or you're going to use some managed wildfire. Of course, managed wildfire is not simple either because you could have challenges with it. But really, those are the two treatments we have, fire treatments and mechanical and areas that are probably inaccessible. Fire treatment will probably be the first one used. We're talking with Scott Stevens, Professor of Fire Science at UC Berkeley's College of Natural Resources. Ezra David Romero is with us, climate reporter for KQED. We're talking about the Caldor Fire. And of course, you can join the conversation with your questions or experiences at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. This listener writes, the fuel reduction work done around Tahoe has helped keep a wall of flame from reaching town. And as Dr. Stevens said, it allows firefighters to defend homes while also providing for their own safety. But embers landing in vulnerable spots is usually what ignites buildings. They need to be hardened against that to more fully achieve wildfire resiliency. There are not enough engines to park one in every driveway. Homes need to be less inclined to ignite in the first place. Scott Stevens, your reaction? No, that's an excellent point and uh, absolutely correct. You know, we do need to work on our homes to make them less susceptible to ignition. And that means, you know, building materials, roofing materials, also the, the vegetation near the home. That has to be a focus that actually goes along with the other work. You're absolutely right. So if you don't do that work and you do the work in the wildlands in the area, you're still going to get embers that come in. You're still going to get spot fire production, just like you say. And that means you got to do it together. You've got to do both. You know, some people would say only work in the wildlands. Only some others might say just work in the wildland urban interface at the home. You got to do both. And that's the only way that you're going to make those systems actually a little bit better. This is Sue writes, what concerns does Scott have about the North Lake Tahoe area? Not necessarily for this fire, but in the future. Is it more geographically protected than South Lake Tahoe? Is the whole basin equally vulnerable? Well, that's another great question. You know, the northern areas also got a bunch of forest around it. A fire could move a little bit like the Caldor fire towards the northern part of the basin. 
when we look at the western edge of the basin, you really have desolation wilderness there. Desolation wilderness is very high elevation. Um, a lot of it is basically unvegetated. When you go through there, the Pacific Crest Trail goes through there. So I would say the western edge of the basin really is somewhat isolated from a fire coming up the west slope and hitting it. But the two places where the freeways run, both Highway 50 and Highway 80, are on the lower areas. And many of those areas are forested. So unfortunately, a forest could actually burn in those areas and vector fire into the basin. That's why we got to do work in those forested areas. Let me go to caller Alistair in San Francisco. Hi, Alistair. Hey there. I just wanted to ask the forestry expert um, from Berkeley um, this question, um, given the given the big fires lately, how much would you estimate is down to climate change and higher temperatures in general versus, you know, the lack of forestry management that you've been describing? That's a great question. I wish I could partition it. You know, I wish I could partition the different factors, two years of drought, climate change, forest conditions. I would say that climate change is about 20 to 25% of our current problems in California forests. I think the vast majority is still the forest conditions. And we actually have evidence of that in different parts of California, places that have been burning for maybe 40 or 50 years and ignition still happening. We don't see increases in severity. We don't see increases in kind of the damage of fires. We also have some work down in Northern Baja, California, Mexico, Jeffrey Pine mixed conifer forest that is really intact. And we also have had fires down there, droughts. And we see again, the forest able to cope with that. So when we have that evidence showing that we have conditions where fires are more naturally allowed to work, we might make those conditions in California more common and we can actually do a lot better. So I would say, yes, climate change is no doubt impacting fire regimes in this state, but I think it's still the minority. It's really a forest structure problem. Hmm. Esther David Romero, um, you are from this part of the state where Lake Tahoe is. It is such an iconic natural resource for our state. You even reported on Tahoe for a podcast called Tahoe Land. So I know how much you appreciate the beauty of this region. And I got to wonder, has this been emotional for you covering the losses around it? Yeah, in some way it's been emotional. I mean, we wrote a podcast and the opening scene was coming over Echo Pass and seeing what Tahoe would look like in 2099 based on climate models for Lake Tahoe, based on science Lake Tahoe scientists have done. Um, and that's exactly where the, the Caldor fire came over. And so the scene we wrote, like part of it happened two years later, not 80 years later um, by climate scenarios. And so it's been somewhat emotional, but I think it's been emotional for everyone because every Californian has some kind of care for Lake Tahoe because beyond the trees and the environment, what's at risk here is Tahoe's sense of place, right? Like Scott said, he's been going there for a long time, backpacking, so have I. People have this like fuzzy, warm feeling about Tahoe and that's what's larger, largely at risk in Tahoe with this fire, so. Yeah. and. and of course, more people have moved there with the prospect of remote work. So the ties just continue to to increase for Californians to this to this area. Let me go to Nathan in Palo Alto. Hi, Nathan. March 12, 1949. Whoop, Nathan, you're on the air. OK. Uh, Hello. Hi, Nathan, you're on the air. Thanks so much. I have two related questions. 
I read yesterday that under Governor Newsom, he both cut funding for fire prevention, number one. Number two, he promised when he came into office that he would take care of 90,000 acres that are vulnerable for fire prevention. And in fact, uh, as of this year, only 13,000 of those acres were uh, protected um, under his administration. I'm calling to see if that's accurate. Mm. Scott Stevens, do you know? I did see some reporting on that, and I did see that some of the um, number of acres treated this year were double counted. Sometimes you do a thinning, then you actually do a burn, and maybe some of those acres were counted as twice. You know, you have twice the area versus you just treated half the area. So there is no doubt that I think that did happen this year. But I would still say that if you look at the administration of both Newsom's and also the last year of Brown, we do see resources and more focus on this problem. They haven't fixed it by any means, but I've never seen really a governor's administration do more, at least focusing on this. The question is, can we get the work done on the ground? And that's something we have to do. Meantime, Ezra Romero, Ezra David Romero, some of the weather reports are saying that conditions could improve tomorrow and heading into the weekend for the Calder fire. Is, is that true? Yeah, the National Weather Service in the morning meeting today talked about how um, the red red flag warning is going on through tonight and that the conditions are supposed to become a little bit better over the next couple of days into the weekend. But then someone else on the same call who works in with fire weather said, you know, like the next three weeks, next four weeks are supposed to be equally as bad off and on. So <laughs> this is a fire that can last for, for weeks and into months, like we've seen with other fires, you know, has happened. And on the question around like, um, containment and prescribed burns and all that stuff. It's not just California that's dealing with this. This is a national issue. So much of the forested land belongs to the National Forest or National Park Service and work there has to be done as well. It's both California and a national issue. Well, it sounds like for now, we really need to get through today. Ezra, thanks so much for your reporting. Thanks for having me. And Scott Stevens, really appreciate your insights as well. Happy to have been here. And thanks to our listeners. Please stay safe if you are affected by this or triggered by it, as there are so many people who have experienced wildfire now deeply and personally. Ariana Prail produced today's segment. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.